Harvard for 400 years now has been the example of global education brand that represents what American higher ed means. And to me, the first and most important part of that is putting uh, academics first and above all else, right? Harvard is supposed to stand for academic excellence, full stop. And I think the second thing it's supposed to stand for is free inquiry, kind of an enlightenment mindset, having truly open academic conversations. And so I think Harvard needs to recenter on that to represent America rep, and represent the best of the best. You know, Harvard is ranked last in terms of on-campus free speech. I've had so many phone calls from professors, from people who say, look, I really agree with you, or here's how to think about this, but I can't speak up. This is off the record, right? And that really speaks to this culture where there's a lot of people who aren't able to actually express their opinions in an academic setting. And that's a real shame. We've ended up in this place with Harvard as a kind of an example to a lot of other institutions really representing American higher ed, where there isn't free speech in the classroom, but then outside the classroom for some reason, it is okay to have bullhorns in the freshman dorm when kids are trying to study, which hurts the academic mission, right? So in some ways it's completely reversed, right? You should have free speech in the classroom. You know, you're a free American citizen. If you want to protest, go to Boston Common, but you can't interrupt this private university and our mission to you know, drive towards the best academics in the world. The har example Harvard sets kind of then sets up what the rest of American higher ed stands for and what it drives towards. And I really think we've got things pretty backwards right now. Hello, and welcome to Notes from the Front, where we feature inspiring guests fighting to make a positive difference in the world. I'm your host, Michelle Tandler. Today, we're speaking with Sam Lesson, a prominent figure in tech and venture capital. Sam has held several exciting roles in his career. He was a VP of product at Facebook and then a founder of two companies, Drop.io and Finn. Most recently, he co-founded and is a general partner at Slow Ventures, a VC firm that has raised over $750 million. He's invested in dozens of innovative startups like Venmo, Solana, and TeamShares, and Sam also writes prolifically both on Twitter and The Information. In this episode, we'll explore Sam's latest endeavor, an against-all-odds run for the Harvard Board of Overseers. Sam, a Harvard alum, has grown increasingly alarmed by changes on the Harvard campus in recent years. He believes that the school requires serious reform and must focus on academic excellence above all else while embracing free speech in the classroom and beyond. We'll delve into what this role entails, the significance of the Harvard example in higher education, and the challenges of running as a write-in candidate. I found the conversation quite fascinating, and I hope you will too. Let's dive in. All right, Sam, it's great to see you again. How are you? Michelle, it's great to see you. I'm great. How was your New Year's? <laughs> it was good. Um, all right, so Sam and I have discussed creating a piece of content to discuss his run for Harvard Overseer Board, and he is calling this the Harvard Overseer Bid. Maybe to kick us off, Sam, can you explain what is the Harvard Overseer Board and why you are running for it? Absolutely. And again, thanks for this with me. Um, yeah, so look, Harvard has two governing bodies. Basically run, you know, ultimately the, the buck stops with them in terms of decision-making universe. One is the corporation, which is, I'd say, better known. Um, very small group. Uh, it's there's 13 seats, 12 of them are filled um, currently. And you know, these people, they elect, they, you know, basically they have terms and then they elect who comes next after them. It's very tightly held. It's a very small group. I almost have been described as like the Senate Harvard, if that makes sense, on a mini scale. And then just as Harvard has a Senate, it also has a House, right? 
And the house is a little bit bigger. It's called the Harvard Overseers. Instead of it being nine people, it's 30. Um, and it's interesting because there's two stories about the Overseers. The one story is kind of how it's operated recently, where Harvard has been very dominated by the corporation, corporations in charge, and the Overseers play a role, but the role is much more academic review, things like that. It's a softer touch, right, is, has been the story in modern times. If you actually go back to the Harvard Charter of 1650, which amazingly Harvard 400 years still operates under, the overseers actually really have some pretty important roles. They approve who becomes president, they approve uh, who gets on the corporation. They have a lot of rights and actually can have a lot of power in the university. And I think, you know, hopefully we'll get into this, but given the real challenges that Harvard faces, you know, in this upcoming period and after a pretty disastrous fall, it's kind of time for the overseers to step up and kind of, I think, take a bigger role that they're, they're kind of historically entitled to rather than kind of it, leaving it all to, to the corporation. OK, that's a helpful. I want to make sure I fully understand this because I've also yeah. now looked this up. I've looked on the Harvard page and I think it's a little confusing. It's okay. super confusing. <laughs> because we've been reading about the board in the yes. news a lot recently, and that's referring to Harvard Corporation Board. That's the corporation. Right? Yes, correct. The corporation. Yes. It's and that re- so when you, like, people say the corporation, what they are referring to is that board. That's correct. That's and, correct. and that is the 13 people. It's actually 12. It's, it is a whole scandal about why there isn't 13 people. There's actually only 12, but it's supposed to be 13. <laughs> okay, let's put that in the parking lot. hundred um, percent. We can go infinitely deep on all of the intrigue. There's so much of it once you start diving in. Okay, got it. So when people refer to the Harvard Corporation, for some reason, I thought that was like some sort of legal entity. I didn't realize that that referred to that governing body of 12 people. No, that's what it is. I mean, the, the, again, Harvard is, again, it's so old. You have to remember it's chartered, dates back to 1650. And so when you go, go all the way, it's actually even slightly older than that, depending on how you count. But it is so ancient that there's actually these two bodies that effectively govern the entire university's you know, system. And you got to keep in mind also, remember, the modern Harvard of today, which is a sprawling thing with all these schools, you know, it's very different than what Harvard was even 100 years ago, right? It still functions under this pretty tightly controlled, um, small group of people. And they called it the corporation back in 1650? The corporation. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Got it. So it's very like, you step back. It is a little James Bond, isn't it? The corporation again. (laughs) I'm like, is that was that even a word back then? Um. Penny Pritzker, she's on that one, right? She's the head of it? She, she's the head of that one. That's correct. And does she have t- some title? Uh, I don't actually know if there's a technical title, but she's the head of the corporation or the... Okay, head of... Head of I don't know it. if they for it. And then, and does everyone on that board need to be an alum? No, um, I don't think on either board you technically need to be an alum, technically. In practice, they all are, is my sense, or pretty much. I think... Well, we can get into this, but on the overseer's side, it's voted by the alums. So it's unsurprising that the alums want to basically people have a connection to Harvard. But I, it's a good question whether technically they have to be. I think in practice, they all are. Okay, so the 30 people on the overseer's board, yep. how often are they sort of moved in and out? How long is a term? How do they get elected? How does it yeah, all work? So, so again, there's the... There's a simple version and the complicated version, as everything with Harvard. And these, the simple let's version is... Let's do the is, simple version. Let's do the simple version. The simple version is a six-year term, right? Um, you come in and you have six years on the overseers. It's an elected position that's voted on by the alums of Harvard. And so 
you know, basically, if you went to any of the Harvard schools, it's about 330,000 alums around the world. You can put your vote in and pick, you know, who should be on the overseers board representing you and kind of acting. I would almost think it was the house of Harvard, being a check and balance on the corporation, helping lead the organization, et cetera. Now, I won't go too deep on the more complicated version, but I think the more important, the thing to understand is that in practice, what happens is HAA, which is Harvard's official alumni organization, puts forward a slate, right? And that slate is usually people who have been extremely involved in HAA, president of HAA, you know, you know, been in the Harvard Club of New York, et cetera. And they say, these are the people to vote for. And it's a very tightly controlled process. So while it's technically a vote where anyone can run and it represents Harvard alums, in practice, only about 30,000, about 10% of alums vote. And the people that are put forward for that voting is very tightly controlled by Harvard's official uh, alumni body more than anything else. Got it. And now you're trying to run as a write-in candidate, correct? Yes, correct. Okay, so, so I am not, is not is not sponsoring you. No, they're not. And, and I do think they know that, you're running? They do. Um, they well, and again, to be clear, governing body, right, which is separate than HA, that has to know you're running and that. But the answer is yes, they know. But what I'd say, there's an interesting history of this, which is over the years, every once in a while, something comes up or a group of alums say, hey, HA really isn't representing our beliefs. Um, so we're going to petition, which you're able to do and say, we'd like to be on the ballot and try to run for overseer, even though we're not technically being nominated by HA. It's a very uphill battle. Interesting, the last time this happened was in 2020 with something called Harvard Forward that had some investiture goals and things like that. And um, they actually were able to get a few petition candidates on, uh, which was interesting. So what the organization did in response, so they didn't like that very much, is they upped the requirement from saying you just need 500 signatures, easily, a piece of paper effectively. You need 3,300, which is 1% of Harvard's population of alums and 10% of who even votes in these things, which kind of you know, makes it sound a lot bigger because it is a big number. And it needs to be done through Crimson Key and Harvard Key, et cetera. So they basically up the requirements, make it much more difficult, and then also limit the number of petition candidates they can even get on. So the bar has been raised, but it is still technically doable. What was it before? 500? 500. Just and 500. It was, was My it sense is could... Harvard Key and all that? I don't think it was. I mean, Harvard Key is a relatively recent system in terms of being rolled out to the alumni, right? And I think the intentions are good. It's like good to have, you know, digital sign-on and identity, you know, as the university. In practice, unfortunately, the reality is that in the polling, I've done only about 50 to 60% of alums and most of the younger ones have it set up. And I will tell you, I have a long list of support uh, emails coming to me saying, hey, Sam, I'd love to vote for you. And I have no idea how to get Harvard Key set up. So, that it's, it's a real limiter to say. The I least. just went through it. I had like forgot my password. I didn't re remember this Harvard key thing. So yeah, yes, it's a definitely adds wild. friction. Okay. Yeah, so you have to have got it. So just let me clarify and make sure I understand yeah. this. You do not have the support of HAA. Like they not are not point. putting you forward. No. You have to get 3,300 people to log into this system and enter in your name. Yes. And when does this have to be done by? The 31st. So we got, we got about, you know, we got two and a half Eight, weeks. 18 days. 18 days. Okay. I'm being well, we'll see how quickly I can edit this. Um, no, 19 days. Um, okay. Well, in fairness, I did start this process a few weeks ago. So it's not right. like we're starting from zero here. Um, it's actually been an interesting thing, which is mid-December. You know, I, I love Harvard. I think it really matters. 
most well-known educational brand in the U.S. and probably the world. So I think the example they set does really matter right, for the rest of the world. And, and so I kind of, like many, were very frustrated and disappointed in their response. And in mid-December, I said, I, beyond just saying I'm not going to donate you know, anytime soon, right, and things need to change, I said, hey, what else can I do to be helpful? And I kind of identified this. You know, at this point, as far by my count, there's now seven people, all of whom I actually, I think, mostly agree on policy changes who are trying to do this at the same time. The good news about that is that there's a lot of energy, right? And everyone's, there's a real alumni voice saying that HAA is not representing, you know, the beliefs of the broader alumni. And so there's, I think, a real consensus. Now, that's great. The bad news is, as with any election system, it's just more noise and like less focus, right? And so it is going to be one of those things where I might, my, the good news is that there's so much energy on this. The bad news is that in your, your point from a brass tax perspective, you need 3,300 people to sign on the line just you know, for you to get on. And you can at max have two petition candidates on. It's kind of complicated in terms of where things are today. Got it. So seven people are doing write-in, are attempting to do a write-in bid for two slots. Right. And that's changed. I mean, I, for me, it was I think I was the first to announce doing this. And there's a woman named Julia who's wonderful, who's who's doing it. You know, Harvey Silvergate, who's one of the founders of FIRE, um, the free speech organization, and has actually done this before, is trying again, as is Judge Harry Hartz, a federal judge. And then if you're following attention in the craziness of this, Bill Ackman just put forward us four people um, who are ex-military, who, again, everyone has slightly different principles, but everyone would say broadly aligned in what needs to change. The difference is how would they approach working as a community with people and what's going to actually be done. My concern, my, my again, the good news, it's great energy. The bad news, it's a lot of noise. Yep. Wait, so Bill Ackman is putting forward four people? Bill Ackman just the, like two days ago said, this is my slate for Harvard Overseers. He put forward four people for two slots, which is a little confusing. I think the, the good news is, I think, again, it's, it's attention. The bad news is, again, it's uh, it's split attention in a lot of ways. And I do worry a little bit. I think Bill Ackman's been great. I've been kind of a big supporter of a lot of what he's been saying broadly. I think he's broadly been right and he has the right messaging. I'm a little worried that his slate has more to do with Twitter than it does with actually getting on the overseers and making change. Um, but that's another topic for another day. Why isn't he um, putting himself forward for it? Um, well, first, it's a lot of work. I mean, I think the re- I think is part of it. It's like, you know, the board of overseers is, is is not a joke. They meet six times a year in person in Cambridge. You have to be ready to do that and actually just at a baseline. And then if you actually hope to make any change and use it as a place to ask questions, right? you know, the overseers very important role, um, especially in this upcoming year, because when they are a big part of selecting the next president, you know, just as everyone's looking at the corporation and blaming the corporation for getting and being the wrong choice and things like that. You know, the overseers agree to, right? And, you know, they might be in some ways seen as a junior board, but they're just as responsible. That's like a major power. And I just think you know, if I were Bill Ackman and you know, even as Sam Lesson, I say, look, I'm willing to invest the time, but it's not a joke, right? If you actually hope to actually make a difference here to, you know, what the requirement and effort is to make it has to be kind of one of your priorities, you know, in the next few years. Yeah. What happens if all seven people get 3,300 signatures? Then whoever has the two, the two most of those 33. And again, this is all, there's a whole other thing, which is how did this process change? Who really said okay to like raising these requirements and saying you can't have as many petition candidates? You know, the same thing goes, by the way, with the Harvard Corporation, if you get into it, you know, 
Harvard expanded the corporation, the number of people on it, and changed how it worked pretty meaningfully. And it's not even clear that that was legal for them to do, but it's also unclear who would ever sue them about it. So a lot of these things, you know, what you start figuring out when you get into the weeds here is you say, well, what happened at Harvard and how do we fix it? And everyone has really interesting perspectives. I've talked to a lot of different people in the, um, in the leadership teams and the administration, professors. You know, I think everyone, a lot of silent people too, want to see change and a lot of this fixed. Right? Which is, this is the same thing about the themes are there. But then how do you actually do it? There's so many nooks and crannies of a 400-year-old institution where you almost end up with a drift where these things happen, right? Not, not, not necessarily with everyone even being responsible. You have to start thinking about how to claw back, what principles to put in place, and how to make this thing work, right? Um, so it sounds like there's wild. been sort of a power grab ta slash takeover by the current board of overseers if they've change the rules to make it difficult for other people to it's not get, i don't run. think it's the overseers as much as it is haa and it's really interesting to say like like we're again i've been working on this now for a while and talking to a lot of great people one of the nice parts about ronnie and being out there and wanting to help harvard is the number of really interesting people that have called perspectives all of course deep off the record have been fascinating you've learned so much about the inner working of harvard but look, it's not clear that it was some, you know, maniacal person with a power grab. Some people think it's just organizational drift because you have these administrators that have been in place forever who actually run things day to day. It's almost like the bureaucracy is leading the boards, right, uh, in a lot of ways, which is a problem. Um, just as one fact of it, there's literally one, you know, you talk about what, how do the overseers function? Well, it turns out that you have the overseers that are elected, but then there's actually one guy who's been doing committee assignments for the overseer since the mid-1990s. And what committees you're on defines what you end up taking on or not and things like that. And some people argue that, you know, the whole overseer election is kind of, it's not a joke, but like the more important part of like who's doing what is controlled by one administrator who isn't elected, right? And that's as much of a problem as anything else, right? And so how do you move that forward? How do you make changes there organizationally to help the organization recover from the fall, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, there are a couple of things you said that I want to loop back to. Yeah. Okay, so I forget the exact wording, but you said something like Harvard really matters or the example that they set matters. Totally. Yeah. Um, and that you were very frustrated. You decided you weren't going to donate, but that you were thinking, what else can I do? Yeah. Um, can you speak more about why you think the example they set matters and sure. why you care so much about this that you are going to this effort to run? Yeah, look, I mean, I think one, again, I am a loyal Harvard alum. I think Harvard's a fabulous institution. I have a ton of friends from there. I want to see it be a fabulous institution for the next generation of students that it was for me. So there's a personal element to this too. It's not purely intellectual. But I'd say on the intellectual basis, you know, Harvard for 400 years now has been, you know, especially in the last century, has been kind of the example, you know, a global education brand that represents what American higher ed means. And to me, the first and most important part of that is putting uh, academics first and above all else, right? Harvard is supposed to stand for academic excellence, full stop. And, and, and I think the second thing it's supposed to stand for is free inquiry, kind of an enlightenment mindset, having truly open academic conversations. Now, unfortunately, if you've been following the news over the last many years, which really came to a head this fall, you know, those two things are quite challenged, right? You know, one in terms of putting academics above all else. 
you know, they lost the Supreme Court case in terms of their admission practices. You know, Gay and the organization has had kind of an explicit DEI mission, right, which is which and, and responsibility, which has stretched or pushed far away from just being academics first in a lot of cases. And that's a real problem. I think we can get into why, but Harvard doesn't want to be dragged into the country's politics. They say, hey, stay out of our business when the Senate comes asking and things like that. But at the same time, the trade is supposed to be for great academic institutions. They are not political themselves, right? They are neutral. They stay out of these things. You can't have it both ways. And so I think Harvard needs to recenter on that to kind of represent America rep and represent the best of the best uh, and what we stand for. And then I think the second thing comes to the speech issues. You know, Harvard is ranked last in terms of on-campus free speech, especially in the academic setting. And so if you think about it, I've had so many phone calls from professors, by people who say, look, I really agree with you or here's how to think about this, but I can't speak up. This is off the record, right? And that really speaks to this culture where there's a lot of people who aren't able to actually express their opinions in an academic setting. And that's a real shame because that's the principle that a true academic freedom Harvard should stand for. So it's weird We've ended up in this place with Harvard as a kind of example to a lot of other institutions and really representing American higher ed, where there isn't free speech in the classroom, right? People feel limited in what they can say. They're not able to explore a full range of ideas, et cetera. But then outside the classroom, for some reason, it is okay to have bullhorns in the freshman dorm when kids are trying to study, which hurts the academic mission, right? So in some ways, it's completely reversed, right? You should say, you should have free speech in the classroom. You know, you're a free American citizen. If you want to protest, go to Boston Common, but you can't interrupt this private university and our mission to you know, drive towards academic, the best academics in the world. Right. Um, so I don't know. I think, you know, I, you know the hard example Harvard sets kind of then sets up what the rest of American higher ed stands for and kind of what it drives towards. And I really think we've got things pretty backwards. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um... On the point about that they should not be political themselves, I'd be curious for your opinion on, you know, something that I noticed was it feels like the, the universities now are expected to create these condemnation letters every single time something happens that's internationally, I don't know, in focus. So I feel like a lot of, for example, Jewish alums were very upset that Harvard did not release a statement about the Hamas attack on Israel quickly enough, right? Well, and then they were like, oh, back in 2020, Harvard released this, this, and this, this at this pace. And then now they're not releasing a statement. And I've been left wondering, is Harvard expected to, like, should they always release a statement? Should they never release a statement? Like, what do you I, think on yeah, that? I think, look, the number one thing is you got to be consistent, right? You, you, you're a platform. You set up rules and you have to be consistent. I actually think, Michelle, to your point, you know, Chicago, I think, basically has it right, which is they have like this deep doctrine of neutrality right, and staying out of everything. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Right. And if Harvard actually was embodied that and kind of had that principle and stuck to it, I think it would make all the sense in the world from say we don't comment on anything. Right. Like we're an academic institution. We stay out of all of it. You know, what happened was George Floyd. Right. Was this moment. Right. Where a lot of people up and said they felt like they needed to comment, break with tradition, et cetera, et cetera. And they kind of got involved. And the problem is, I don't think you can be selective about these things, right? If you're going to be someone, if you're going to be an organization that comments on them, you have to be consistent and set up policies around that. If you're going to be someone who stays neutral, that's completely respectable. What is not okay is being inconsistent. 
because it basically it, it's it's just all downside. And the irony is, you know, I spent a big part of my career Facebook, very interesting period because it was a period when Facebook went from being an application that some college kids used to a global platform, right? That where a lot of the world's speech was happening. And I'll tell you, we wrestled with a lot of these issues. What are the standards, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I don't actually, what I'd say as a proud Facebook alum, definitely did not get everything right, you know? And there's a lot of, you know, there's a, a whole history there, right? But I did see what that wrestling was like. And I think the thing that Harvard has to understand is like Facebook, it's a global brand and a global platform, which means that it needs to have consistent enforced rules, right? whatever they are, right? And they can't just be all over the place in terms of these responses. So to me, as a Jewish Harvard alum, I'd say, if you took out the George Floyd, if they never commented on anything, right? I'd say, fine, that, that's just how it is, right? I still think it protects student safety and the academic mission. I still think protests in the court. There's a lot of things they say you have to stop. I still think the question of people using the Harvard brand and Harvard funds as undergraduate clubs to promote hate is a really challenging one. It's literally Harvard's money used for these things. But It'd be, I would understand it if there hadn't been a George Floyd response. In the context of the George Floyd response, it's completely inexcusable. Yeah, that makes sense. So are there any high-level changes that you could see yourself advocating for with a lot of yeah. conviction? So I think the answer is there's a, a bunch, and it, it's really interesting because I think as going to the, this campaign and hopefully getting elected and working on the overseers, get there we get hoping we can't the what are the principles you stand for and then what are the opportunities to actually have impacts tactically right and you kind of have to look at both the principle stuff hopefully we've talked a bunch about and i think people academics first right that's in pulling harvard back from any politics it's making sure there's real free speech in the classroom and that students are safe right and feel like they can be there and pursue their academic goals like not super principle level and by the way most people running for overseer, I think, broadly share those views, as do a lot of the administrators and a lot of the leaders at the school. Question is then tactically how to get there. You need a strong president. Gay was not a good choice, right? She turned out to be a weak leader, right, in a moment of extreme crisis. You know, I do think she's a symptom as much as the cause. I don't think putting this all on her makes any sense. Right? I think she was there at a wrong time, but she clearly was in an effective leader. And then on an academic basis, say what you will about what's plagiarism, what's the person who leads the premier education brand in America and potentially the world needs to be one of the most academically credible people in the world, full stop, right? And she's clearly not, right, in terms of what's class. So that was a bad choice. And that's on the overseers. That's on the, that's on the corporation. You know, one thing I know tactically is that I will be involved, the overseer will be involved in picking the next president. Better pick a good one, right? Then there's questions of like, I am sure, very high confidence, the university is going to make decisions on whether they should have some sort of neutrality position they keep in. Like, I think that's an important thing to push on. It'll be very attacked like, that to get there. Administrative reform, you know, are you going to overhaul all of Harvard's administration next year? Almost certainly not. Let's be honest. That's not realistic. But there probably are key moments and key places that will come up where, you know, I would be in a position to ask the right questions and advocate for the right things and kind of ideally play this insider outsider role which is you know you need to be able to work with the insiders or you won't get anything done right i think if you come in and you're flaming everyone all the time and you're just you know, it, it, that's fine you might but it's just it's not a very effective thing so you need someone who can cooperate internally but at the same time like you know from my perspective especially if i get elected on this slate and with these goals the whole point 
right, is to be able to stand up and say, hey, you know, someone needs to be asking these questions, right? I wasn't elected through the HAA process. I'm not here to as a favor to kiss rings. I'm here to make sure the right thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I like this term insider outsider. That's really neat. Um, that's kind of inspiring. I, I would like to be an insider outsider. Somewhere. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, I've had you know, the good news. I've had that opportunity a few times in my life. I'm actually familiar with the insider outsider role, and I think I could have real help. I could really help. I like it. Okay, before we wrap, anything else you would like to say about how people can help if they're a Harvard alum, if they're not an yeah. alum? Um, so, how can yeah, how can we get you I on the, the in, this insider outsider role? <laughs> There's two things, right? As a Harvard alum, I would really ask if, if kind of what, what I'm saying resonates and you believe in the principles. If you go to samforoverseer.com, there's, you know, there's a link that tells you how to nominate me. It's not that complicated, but, you know, it's, it's kind of worth going through the webflow for it because if you went and Googled how to do this, how to nominate someone, you will never find it. You know, whether that's on purpose or not. But I have outlined directions <laughs> about how to nominate me. Share it with your Harvard friends. Um, you know, if, you, if you didn't go to Harvard and you have people, friends who did, or, you know, obviously if you, and you have an alumni community, it'd be great. Um, and please reach out. You know, I, I like want to, you know, I'm le at, at lesson on Twitter. You know, I'm happy to engage. Ultimately, this is going to be a ground game in terms of just getting people to say not only, hey, this is a cool idea or like Sam seems reasonable, but I'm willing to take the five minutes to nominate him. I think once we get that done and see the nomination process, I have a lot of confidence with it with momentum. I can get on the overseers, but the hard part is just getting nominated. Mm -hmm. And then if you're not a Harvard alum. Share it with Harvard alum friends. <laughs> okay, great. Unfortunately, um, you have to regret it. I found, I'll tell you a funny story, which is Harvard, the website we're doing this has unfortunately been broken a bunch, uh, which is a whole other set of problems in terms of you got to keep the website up and have these processes. But I did at one point have talk about being Harvard alums, had one person message me being like, this, the website's broken. And I messaged the administrator and they said, Sam, the website this time, it was broken before, it's actually not broken this time. This person's wrong. And I went back and they said, hey, by the way, I know you went to Harvard. Did you graduate? And they go, oh, yeah, I didn't graduate. <laughs> so, <laughs> so unfortunately, that, that is kind of the requirement uh, to this thing. Oh, my goodness. All right. Need to have graduated. So actually, yes, I received an email from someone uh, a couple days ago, a friend of mine. I had no idea that you knew this person. And it was an email that said, please vote to Sam Lesson, in all capitals, for Harvard's Board of Overseers. And um, I guess he sent it out to a lot of people. Um, I think what I'll also what I'll do is it, I'll attach in the show notes the link to your website. I'll also if you. If you thought that, I think you know what email I'm talking about. Um, I can put that as a template for people. That'd be great. Yes. Send. That'd be and, great. And um, I'm rooting for you. Michelle, I appreciate you taking the time. It's great to see you. <laughs> All right. Thanks for great. doing this. All right. That is a wrap for this conversation. In the show notes, you can find a link to Sam's website that include instructions on how to nominate him for the board. You can also find there a sample email to send to Harvard alums or friends of alums. Thank you so much for listening and hope to see you next time. <laughs>